from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a prolific author of over 10 novels in the extreme genre of splatterpunk. She's joining us today to talk about her recent novel, Cabin Possessions, as well as her new novella, Chainsaw Hooker, which is being released on the day of this episode's recording. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Judith Sonnet. Judith, welcome to the show. Hi, it's really good to be here. It's great to have you here. Uh, thank you for joining me today on a day that has special significance because it's the day of the release of your new book, Chainsaw Hooker, an Extreme Revenge Novella. And uh, that's actually one of the first things I did this morning was uh, jump on Amazon and get a, a paperback headed my way. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to hear what people think of this one. So... On the book itself, there's a warning that states, This is an extreme novel. It features graphic violence, gore, torture, and sexual abuse. So can you tell us a little bit about the premise of the book, as well as some background on its inspiration? So Chainsaw Hooker is very much inspired by a lot of the old like vintage comic books, revenge films, and trauma movies that I watched growing up. Um, what, what was that last part? Tinned, trauma? Oh, uh, trauma movies. Yeah, like uh, Lloyd Kaufman produced exploitation films from the 70s, mostly to the 90s is what I liked. Okay. Um, but they did very like low budget, cheap, over the top movies. Um, <laughs> and I wanted Chainsaw Hooker to feel like one of those movies that never got made. Um, it's about a prostitute named R.J. Almond who gets abducted by a cult of junkies who are worshiping a cosmic deity. And she ends up getting a chainsaw from hell to get her revenge on them. Um, nice. So where most of my books have been like purposefully trying to be disturbing. Um, this one is more fun, uh, more over the top. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit more about the background in those movies you were talking about the trauma movies? Because uh, it's not something I'm familiar with. I've heard you like on the generic podcast talk about a lot of your inspiration from real obscure German movies that I've never heard of. Like you have this background <laughs> that I'm just like completely lost. Can you kind of expound a little more on that? Yeah. So like um, I'm a real big fan of like German splatter movies and Italian horror movies. 
and Troma, Full Moon, and a whole bunch of other studios uh, were basically competing with that type of filmmaking in the in the eighties and nineties. Um, so, like indie movies, horror exploitation, or action that were trying to push boundaries. We're trying to be as shocking as possible to get attention. Um, and a lot of it was just like gross out humor and gags, splatter scenes and things like that. Like tra- trauma movies feel like garage house heavy metal mm. for the movie scene, if that makes any sense. Okay. Yeah. What would be the ways that this digresses from your previous work other than it being, you know, kind of the way you stated more of a, a fun over the top sort of thing? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I try and do something different with all of my books, um, but many of them are written with the intention to like make the audience feel repulsed. And in this one, I guess I wanted them to feel a bit more vindicated, um, which is why I put a revenge novella on the title because it's all about getting revenge against the people who wronged this main character. Um, I wanted people to kind of cheer it on in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and um, how many novels do you have in total? Oh God. <laughs> um, or I guess, I guess I, uh, books period, I, whether they be novellas I or novels. I think it's around 10. Around 10. Um, yeah. Counting, we have summoned, which is out of print right now, but I am going to be bringing it back in August. Okay. Yeah. And there are a certain number of those that are revenge. What's the word I'm looking for? Revenge uh, horror, I guess. Yeah. Exploitation um, okay. and horror are both the genres I like. There's aspects of revenge, um, but this is the first one that kind of goes all out in it. Okay. Like, well, so on a on a scale of one to ten, what kind of violence are we looking at? <laughs> oh, I tr- I try my best to go for a ten on all of them. <laughs> yeah. um, each... oh, I thought you were going to be hyperbolic and tell me twelve. Or no, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like that, but there are other authors. Yeah, <laughs> um, I recently saw a one star review that said my books are nothing but gratuitous violence with no social redeeming quality, and like. My response to that is just thank you. Yeah, it's like <laughs> that's what, what I want. That's what, what I'm going for. <laughs> it's like that's exactly the reaction I want. <laughs> it's like going into a strip club and saying there's too many bare tits in right. here. What's going on? <laughs> it's like it's why I put the warnings on the front, the back, and inside the book. I'm like, yeah. If if you're reading this book, I want you to know what you're in for. <laughs> yeah, not for the faint of heart. If the no. picture itself. If the picture in the title itself wasn't enough to clue yeah. you in. <laughs> the fact that it's called Chainsaw Hooker. Like, yeah, no, yeah. that's uh, purely metaphorical. It's about a nun who runs an orphanage. Yeah, she's very nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I was, uh, I was looking through your books on Amazon, and uh, I wanted to read your most recent work of horror, but at the time, your most recent work was book two of a trilogy. So the one immediately before that, oddly enough, was an updated version of one of your first books or maybe the first book. I don't know. Cabin Possessions. Uh, Second book. Second book. Second book. Okay. Yeah. And from what I understand, it was author Daniel J. Volpe that suggested you give the book a makeover. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, Well, I actually I came to him more as a fan. At that point, um, this was before I started self-publishing and I 
told him I'm writing. I have two books published through a small press company. Unfortunately, that company went out of business and both of those books went out of print. And he was just like, take those books, re-edit them, put them out the way you want to with your control over it. And that kind of got me started on self-publishing, um, which has been great. Um, I did recently sign with DNT Publishing, who are really big in the indie horror scene. Um, and they'll be publishing a book of mine in 2023. But other than that, I really love just doing it myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's it like coming at a previous work and deciding what needs to be changed and how you're going to do it and how much to the original uh, it's going to stick to and, and all that? I try and keep the content as close as possible to the original. Um, but like since writing those two books, I found my voice more in extreme and gory horror. And I found scenes where I subconsciously held back or was trying to appeal more to like mainstream sensibilities. So going back to cabin possessions, I ended up adding a lot of extra gore blood. I added a few more kills during the massacre sequence at the end, but mostly the editing was just grammatical because even though it had gone through like a small press, I just wasn't happy with how the grammar was on the first run of it. Too many ellipses, words that just get overused. It was nitpicking to like find these tiny things that stood out to me now that I've had more experience editing my own books. Um, the big change was mostly the grammar and I just added way more kills and violence to it. Okay. And so when this was first published, how long ago was that? Uh, it was actually, I think, the summer of 2021. So it hadn't even been out that long before the company fell under and I got the rights back. Okay. So what was kind of going on where you came to the conclusion that you wanted to not only start publishing books, but publishing these extreme, extreme violence, extreme horror books? I've always been a fan of violent movies, violent literature, um, just just because I like the thrill of like people pushing boundaries and buttons. Um, so I think it's always been my intention to like write to shock, um, but I just wasn't very confident with it at first. I didn't know how far it was too far. And then... After a while, I found a community with other extreme authors and was like, oh, there is no limit. It's perfectly fine for me to write down exactly what I'm thinking. <laughs> like, um, I, again, Daniel J. Volpe is a huge inspiration to me. He's a fantastic author who does a great job pushing those boundaries while telling a good story. Um, Aaron Beauregard is also really fantastic and inspiring to so many of us in this field. Um but my biggest influence and inspiration came from reading Edward Lee, um, who wrote The Big Head and Header, Hunter, and The Threshold, a whole lot of really just great, obscenely violent and perverse books. And reading those, I'm just like, I love this. I want to do this. So sounds like it was the community. How did you stumble upon the community? Was it like social media or... Yeah. Um, before I started publishing, I actually kind of practiced 
putting writing out by doing reviews on uh, Instagram for movies and books I was reading. Um, and I still do that. I really love like just talking about whatever media I'm consuming. Um, so my, my Instagram account, full-time horror junkie is where I kind of fostered a community of readers and of other creators, because if you put out enough reviews consistently, like, small presses begin to notice you authors begin to notice you directors start talking to you. And I would just use that to like ask them questions and figure out how they got into publishing and learn from them. So was this like a blog or how or what was the format of the reviews? Yeah. You have to be very concise on Instagram because there's a small word count. And I didn't really want to like write reviews that go into the comments because I know that like there's a lot to see when people go on Instagram and scroll through it. I want to kind of grab their attention, tell them about a movie I think they'd like and not like linger on it too long. So it's kind of like a blog, but like quicker, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd take a picture of a, a movie from my physical media collection and do like a little review or write up on it. Um, branched into books, like posting about those after I established a movie community fan base, got the book fans in <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> then started putting my writing out there. And thankfully a lot of people have really embraced it and want to read it. Awesome. You know, I'm kind of confused. Instagram's pretty much the only social uh, media that I exist on. And I'm always confused when it comes down to what's allowed and what's not. Because I see, like, horror pulp art, I think, is one of the platforms that's always showing uh, screenshots of them getting strikes against their channel for, like, animated... I don't even really think is like, animated nudity. It's just, like, very voluptuous yeah. women or something like that. But then I see like video of like a woman getting shot in the head and the old, it's it's still up there. But there's like a this is in wh whatever the wording is. This is intense. Click here. Are you sure you want to view this or something yeah. like that? So I'm like, what is allowed? Oh, it's, it's strange that I haven't ever gotten any strikes um, because I like to I like to post like death scenes from whatever movies I'm watching on my stories on Instagram. Um but like I, I only tend to share like the covers of movies on the posts themselves. So maybe that deters Instagram from paying too much attention to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> generic published a uh, story on a review he did of Martyrs, and he showed the whole beginning scene where uh, the the girl just starts shooting that family oh, with a shotgun. Love that movie. Yeah, <laughs> I love that movie too. So oh, so fucking awesome. Uh, but I don't know. I didn't really keep up to see he was thinking he was going to get in trouble for putting it up. I don't know if he was talking about for graphic content or for like copyright. So I didn't really keep up with it to see if it, it stayed up there for the entirety of the story. But uh, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, so you don't have any more uh, knowledge of that than I do, because uh, no. I'm always like, what, what can I put up? What can I not? Un until the day <laughs> they contact me and say, quit that shit. Because <laughs> <laughs> I recently posted like, the shot from uh, New York Ripper where the killer uses like a razor blade on a woman's eyeball. Mm -hmm. Like nobody even batted an eye at that. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, redirecting back to uh, cabin possessions right off the bat, the first scene involves a dead body with a, a centipede like demon that you describe in such 
creepy visceral detail at some point i tried to stop imagining it and just <laughs> read the book like it was a it was a fucking uh user's manual for an appliance but <laughs> thank you then, then i snapped out of it yeah. grew a grew, grew a spine and continued <laughs> on but when you write scenes like that do you come at it from a technical angle, like thinking about the particular words you're going to use for maximum impact, or is it just a purely visual space that you create and translate into words? It's, it's mostly visual. Um, especially like my first write through for it. I love movies. So I tend to write my books like it's a movie that I'm watching and I'm transcribing like what I'm seeing. And then I go back from the very beginning, work my way through it, and add all the other details that fill out that image. Okay. And uh, I might butcher this name, but I like the way you depart from the standard Judeo-Christian concept of demons being fallen angels and all being bad with the creation of, is it Larigil? Uh I've been pronouncing it Larigil. Larigil. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Who's a demon? And did either one of them have genders? I can't even remember. For some reason, I feel like yeah, Larigil was female. Um, Larigil was female. Um, Gisazel yeah, was Gisazel was yeah. male. Yeah. So Larigil, Larigil, excuse <laughs> me, is a, a demon, but isn't evil per se. And good demons are common in occult lore, like demonolatry and uh, even Judaic mythology. So I was wondering if you drew the inspiration for Larigil's uh, character from any existing lore, or did you just kind of pluck her out of your imagination? I, I did not. Um, I, I took her from my imagination. Um, I, I kind of tend to treat like demons and Judeo-Christian mythology, uh, the way H.P. Lovecraft does. You can really just make it up as far as you go. Someone else made it up before you. You can add to it. Um, so I write about demons a lot, and sometimes they fall in line with what I already established in Cabin Possessions, and sometimes they're completely different. Like um, Chainsaw Hooker, whenever you get a chance to read that, has a very different interpretation of heaven and hell and demons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look forward to that. So you said uh, demons are a common theme in your books? Yeah, um, it's just kind of, it's really fun to write about something that doesn't follow any rules. Mm -hmm. And I feel like demons especially do that. So when I write about demons, I, I really try my best to distance them from like established religions or Christianity or anything like that. And I can make them more cosmic beings. I can make them more like aliens, but like there's so much room for like spontaneity and horror. If it's something that doesn't follow our rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in cabin possessions, who was your favorite character to write? Uh, probably Gisazel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I love Gisazel writing was really... a really motherfucker. <laughs> He's evil and I hate him and I loved writing about him. <laughs> yeah. of, of the human characters, Adam was a really fun one to write just because he was very much based off a friend of mine mm -hmm. um, who I got permission to use his real name oh, okay. and to kill him off. I gave him options for how he wanted to die and he chose that scene <laughs> adam it was adam and jilly is that right adam and jilly yeah 
Yeah, he was the uh, the clown, right? He just always yeah, he was just a big goofball, and I I like having goofball characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things I wondered is the way those characters interacted with each other is that similar to you and your friends? Like it, whenever you're, I base them all off of random people I know, um, but none of those people know each other. Okay. So, <laughs> it, yeah. I, I sort of guess like how, you know, like, Oh, this random like person I know who was homeschooled back in like seventh grade, how would they interact with this random person I knew from college? Like I haven't really written anything very realistic towards like me and my friends yet. Um, I'm kind of inching towards it with a coming of age book that I'm working on called Saban, Saban, Saban. Okay. Um, but even then there's a lot of creative liberties with my friends. So is that going to be kind of a, a further digression from your usual? Not really. <laughs> Yeah, Not really? no, okay. it's, it's just gonna, it's still <laughs> coming of age within the context of extreme. Yeah. Horror. <laughs> yeah. It's, I wrote about 100 pages of like coming of age drama. And then I wrote a scene that made me look in the mirror for a while and wonder what's wrong with me. So, oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that sounds like it's going to be good material then. <laughs> I'm very excited for people to read it. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, as terrifying as the character of Jazazel is, I thought it was hilarious. I don't know if you intended it to be hilarious, but I thought it was hilarious how you came up with the concept for him to dismember and royally fuck up any dead oh, body you. that he created. Yeah. <laughs> not not because he wanted to be evil, but just so that Laragil would have no viable dead body to inhabit. <laughs> it was like he was uh, slashing tires of abandoned cars so yes. she couldn't follow <laughs> How did you come up with that idea? <laughs> it, again, the thing about demons is spontaneity. Actually, that wasn't like happening in the first draft. Um, I just didn't really have Laragel able to possess anything except for inanimate objects. And mm. then I didn't like that rule, so I scrapped it when I went back and added the scenes of him just tearing bodies apart so I had an excuse for not to take them. <laughs> <laughs> And get her yeah, in that car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was funny because, like, when I started off reading it, I was like, oh, this is a sick fuck. You know, he's tearing his arms off. He's doing this and that. And then <laughs> the first time, the first scene that involved her attempt, I forget exactly what it was. She managed to get in one of the bodies, but like could only limp to wherever <laughs> she was going. <laughs> so um, before the release of Cabin Possessions, you have Greta's Fruit Cup. And uh, I guess it makes sense with the two prime movers of a compelling story being sex and violence to go from writing extreme violence to extreme erotica. And uh, I haven't read Greta's Fruit Cup, but I did download a, a, a Kindle sample just to see what it was like. And uh, unfortunately, it ended right as things were starting to get good. <laughs> so I need I need to go ahead and buy that one. But uh can you uh, tell us a little bit about the premise of the story and what made you decide to branch over into erotica? Yeah. Um, Greta's Fruit Cup was something I wrote kind of to take a break from extreme horror. Um, it was just a period of time where the news was really getting me down and I couldn't really focus on like writing depressive material. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of desperately searching for queer joy in media and was only finding stories about queer trauma. 
And then I felt a little bit guilty about all the horror books I've written where I've put queer people through traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it, it started kind of just as an exercise for myself to write something that was a bit more joyful and fun and lighthearted. Um, so Greta's Fruit Cup is about a woman who's given up on sex with men and realizes that she's a lesbian and goes on this journey through the city to like try and find her first genuine lesbian experience. And the woman she ends up having that experience with is uh, kind of an elusive figure that she then is trying to find the next day. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of eyes wide shut, but without being sad. <laughs> um, that's what I because it, yeah I read the it gets description in, I thought of eyes wide shut yeah yeah it, that was very much an inspiration for it because I love that movie I think it's great but it's also terrifying <laughs> and uh, I kind of wanted to do a, a more erotic and fun version of that okay so more erotic and fun version of eyes wide shut yeah <laughs> all right I got you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sounds good. Well, so uh, sex and violence at their core have a lot in common. So is the approach to writing extreme erotica that much different from writing extreme violence? Yeah, it actually takes more out of me to write extreme erotica. Um, And I think it's more because like how you set the stage is so important to actually writing the smut portion of it. Um, I'm very conscientious about like how consent is expressed in erotica. I know this when it's not, and it always bums me out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I kind of have to put more of my heart into erotica and even something short like Greta's fruit cup takes a lot of like energy and patience and time. Um, Well, with horror, it's kind of like, as long as I have the characters established so that people care about them, I can sort of throw them into any situation. It's just as long as I keep the core, like spirit of those characters intact throughout it, then it works. So horror is a lot easier. Yeah. Well, with your work, I keep hearing the term splatterpunk and I'm not familiar with what specific elements make splatterpunk. So would you say that all of your work with, you know, obviously the uh, exception of Greta's Fruit Cup is like splatterpunk or are there other subgenres of horror that you dip into? Yeah, I think splatterpunk and extreme horror can go very hand in hand. The The differences between the two are very finite. So I, I like to think that my books exist in both splatterpunk and extreme. Uh, I haven't really written something that hasn't involved body fluids. <laughs> um So no creepy gothic slow burners from me. Well, so who would you say other than yourself are the, uh, the best splatterpunk authors? Um, Edward Lee is, I have already mentioned him huge influence on pretty much everyone who has ever wanted to write splatterpunk. Um, if you read his book, the big head, it will change your life. The big head. (laughs) Um, Okay. Maybe not for the better, but it will change your life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love it. Um, Aaron Beauregard and Daniel J. Volpe are really like top of their class right now in terms of contemporary authors. 
Um, John Athan is fantastic. Uh, if you read his book, The Groomer or Into the Wolf's Den, it's unforgettable modern exploitation horror. Oh, there's a bunch. Richard Lehman was huge for me growing up and is still impacting my writing. Um, and he wrote so much that there's still so many books of his I haven't read yet. Yeah, I've been meaning to. I uh, wanted to check out The Groomer by by John Athan. Um, I just finished The Cuck by uh, Aaron Beauregard and just finished uh, Plastic Monsters by um, Daniel J. Volpe. I haven't so, read Plastic Monsters yet. I really want to. It looks great. Uh, yeah. It's really good. <laughs> you talk about the uh, skillful exposition of malignant narcissism oh my like, gosh <laughs> it's just so and the you know i'm not going to give away any spoilers but the the doctor that's a solid character nice <laughs> yeah. he's so good at writing unique characters for every single book he does mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah i've never felt like he's repeated a character archetype or anything like that well, speaking of splatterpunk authors and particular books, since I've read Cabin Possessions, I've already got Chainsaw Hooker on the way. What's the next one I read? I'm a huge fan of Torture the Sinners. Um, it's a throwback to Italian horror movies. So I very purposefully made sure that there are scenes that don't make sense in it <laughs> um, because Italian movies tended to go for visuals over logic or plot <laughs> and i want to like convey that through a book um so it's kind of a ghoul themed slasher about a group of kids that go to party at a abandoned monastery and the zombified monks wake up and start torturing them mm. um, and i had a blast writing it um it's one of one of my proudest moments cool yeah i'll definitely check that out you were talking about um Italian, uh, I, well, I mean, this was an Italian director. His last name was Diodato, I think, or that was that his first oh. name? Uh, um, that would be Ruggiero Diodato. Yes, did, uh, yes, Animal yes. Holocaust. Yes, and my favorite is the House on the Edge of the Park. House on the Edge of the Park. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I watched uh, Cannibal Holocaust. I'd wondered if you'd seen it. What did you think of Cannibal Holocaust? I have so many feelings about Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, so do um, I. <laughs> I just like, wow, I don't know what like, to... Right out the gate, like, I do love it. It is a great movie, and it is essential viewing for anybody who is at least partially interested in exploitation films. But you have to watch it with, like, historical context. Like, the animal cruelty in it. Obviously, like, I don't sit here and enjoy watching it. But, like we can't really ignore that it happened or that movies didn't do things like that, especially in Italian films, because after cannibal Holocaust cannibal Ferox came around and it also features animal cruelty, but also has some of the best gore that I think I've ever seen in a movie. So it's like a love relationship with the movie itself, but hate the method it was made type of thing. Hmm. Yeah, it was weird the way that I watched the movie because I didn't know I had never heard of it, didn't know it existed. And I was watching. Um, do you ever watch Cursed Films on Shudder? I have not seen that. 
So it's a series they have on Shudder. They talk about particular films that have a lot of weird stuff like tragedy and just, you know, stuff that goes wrong surrounding particular movies. Examples would be uh, Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist and the like. And they had Cannibal Holocaust on there. So I saw that, you know, them talking with the actors that were involved with it and going over all of the real controversial scenes like the um, the turtle. And it was just like out of morbid curiosity that I wanted to watch this movie. And it was on Shutter, like they were streaming it. So I watched it knowing all this stuff was about to come up and they didn't really expound on it too much on cursed films. It was kind of like a censored uh, version of yeah. it. So like I knew what was coming and I was just like, whoa. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, uh, that's a, a really, I don't know how I feel yeah. about this type of movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's one of those movies where like, if anybody tells me it's not that bad, I'm like, you you are lying right to my face. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a movie that genuinely deserves the notoriety and infamy that surrounds it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, yep. it's like a huge exploitation fan. You got to watch it. Mm-hmm. So you, from what I've seen are a very prolific author. How much time in any given week do you spend writing? Um, it really depends on the week. I treat it like a second job. So after I finish work, the first thing I do usually when I get home is get writing. And I try and do that for about three or four hours a day. So yeah, yeah, I I have to dedicate a lot of time to it, which I'm okay with because I'd rather be writing than doing most anything else. Do you have a like a, a regular work schedule that you're able to schedule your writing with? Or do you have a job where you're just kind of all over the place? Yeah, thankfully, I, I work a morning shift at a hospital um, and I'm off at 2.30 every day. So that gives me like plenty of time and no excuses for when I get home. Uh, when we were talking earlier, I think you said you, you're not one of those authors that writes on the old mechanical typewriter. You're on a computer. Yeah, I'm on a computer, but it's an old one. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I'm very stuck in my ways when it comes to that computer. <laughs> well, speaking of for the sake of, I was listening to you on generics podcast and I heard you refer to that book being difficult to write due to the subject matter. You were proud of it, but it was like, it was difficult for you to write. Is that common with some of the books you write? Yeah. Um, especially with any book that involves sexual assault or rape, just because like I'm, I'm a survivor of abuse. So even if like a scene of abuse in my book is very different from what happened to me, it still like brings back those feelings. And again, I have not written anything autobiographical, um, I've written a bunch of trans characters, but none of them are like based off of me and my experiences. So like everything that I've written is so different from my real life, but that doesn't mean that I don't superimpose my own feelings into it. So the, for the sake of books, as much as I love them and I'm so happy with them, like they're hard to write because they're so focused on like sexual assault and sexual gratification through violence. So in particular, brutal scenes, you sometimes have to, do you have to stop and just step away for a little while or come back the next day, something like that? 
Yeah, I'll I'll watch the monsters or the Rockford Files for a while and then come back. <laughs> got, oh, the monsters got my comfort shows. The, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Adams family. I do love the Adams family, but Herman Munster just makes me smiel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, what's the actor's name from Pet Cemetery that plays Herman Munster? Uh, Fred Quinn. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. He. Uh, he's just a lovable guy. It's just great. <laughs> Even when he says "dead is better." Yeah. Just <laughs> this lovingly redeemable. Really, character. really, just overbearing New England accent. <laughs> yeah. So lovely. <laughs> what was? What was he in? Uh, My cousin Vinny. The uh, judge. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what is a ute? <laughs> uh, well, I've uh, I've speaking of the particularly brutal scenes, I've heard you refer to specifically brutal scenes in your books that you say you've gotten a lot of messages about. And I've heard you say it more than once. And I'm curious, are these readers saying like you've gone too far and we need to reignite the obscenity trials or what, are they, <laughs> what kind of shit are they saying? To yeah, you? I can't um, imagine writing. I can't imagine writing an author and saying, listen, I need to talk to you, young lady. You. Um, yeah, the uh, well, it's funny, the clown hunt. Um, there is a chapter I wrote in that that I knew while writing it. I was like, this is going to stir people up mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it's chapter 12 the chapter is called wishbone okay i am not going to spoil what happens in it you will have to find out for yourself uh but yeah like when i released that book um one of the first people that like reached out to talk to me about it was a fellow author who said i'm not going to reveal who it was but he told me that that scene he wished he had written it and i like my heart just welled up and I was so happy and the next day I got a message from some random lady who was like shame on you for chapter 12 that is the worst shit I've ever read <laughs> she's like I can't give it out of my mind and I hate you and I'm like yay that's what I wanted <laughs> Um, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, think about that's a lot of power you have yeah. over somebody else being able <laughs> being able to pen something, you know, just, you know, use words, you know, yeah. those noises you make with your mouth to implant a uh, a scene in somebody else's head that just destroys the mental oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and like, again, that's why I put warnings on my books, because I do want people to know what they're getting in for. So it always kind of tickles me when I. I get a few reviews and comments from people who blatantly say they ignored the warnings and were still surprised by what I put in those books. And I'm like, that's why I put the warnings on them. <laughs> well, so uh, have your books gotten more extreme since Cabin Possessions? Because, you know, like is Cabin Possessions kind of like uh, – Judith Sonnet Lights. Am I about to get yeah. into the heavy shit? <laughs> Cabin Possessions is, as, as much as I love it, it is Diet Judith okay. Sonnet. Okay, yeah. I'm about to get the classic um, shit. All right. Yeah, again, <laughs> when when you get into Clown Hunt, Chapter 12. Clown Hunt. All right. A lot happens in that chapter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then what I'm about to get is Chainsaw Hooker, which you said is kind of fun. Yeah, it's still super over the top and gory and violent. Um, but I kind of want you cheering while you vomit. So, <laughs> okay. 
So, I mean, will Chainsaw Hooker kind of be a a taste of how extreme it gets, or am I going to have to go back into the... uh... It's very much a taste of the extreme. It's just a very different tone. Um, Because, like, Clown Hunt and For the Sake Of are very, like, kind of serious and dark, and Chainsaw Hooker is Chainsaw Hooker. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Enough said. Enough said. (laughs) It's Chainsaw Hooker. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, I'm still kind of stuck on that woman. It was a woman, right, that uh, wrote you and said, shame on you. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I wonder if she's well, like the same uh, type of person that does like YouTube comments. <laughs> I got one for uh, Repugnant, which was someone saying that they will never read another female author because of my book. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like I, I ruined the gender for you. Like <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> oh my god! It oh it's it's sad, but I'm like I'm kind of happy about it because it's like I'm really upsetting the right people if I if I've ruined women mm-hmm. for someone. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I mean that's some pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and that was like pretty early on when I started self publishing that they wrote me that, and I was. After that, it's like whatever people say can't shock me anymore. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have a uh, a designated writing space? And uh, I wa- if you do, I want to believe that you've got it like all gored out, like a an inflatable sex doll covered in blood hanging from the ceiling or something with a knife in it. Oh, I wish that's a good idea. <laughs> um, no, it's uh, it's actually just my living room. Um, I, I like to, to write somewhere where I don't have a lot of distractions because if I have like movies or other books nearby, I know I'm going to be tempted to watch or read them. Um, so like my living room is very bland. I've, I can just kind of sit there and exist in the book. Um, so I, I sit on a recliner, I have my laptop and I just write there. Okay. Yeah, I guess I can see that. Like, I'm sure some authors have like these crazy environments, but if you're easily distracted, like I am very easily yeah. distracted <laughs> when I'm, you know, doing my podcast editing. If you came into my, my little home studio here, there's like, there's no pictures on the wall. The only thing on the walls are like these uh, black sound blankets and, you know, my bookshelf. So, yeah, I can easily see that. Um, I probably sound like a broken record to anybody that's listened to more than two of my podcasts, but I always like to ask authors whether or not they outline or if they're a pantser. It depends on the book. Like Saban, 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 I have a very strict outline for just because that's a bigger book. Uh, same with For the Sake of Two, but like Torture the Sinners, especially since I wanted that one to feel kind of more loony and uh, dreamlike. I, I made sure I had no idea what I was doing before I went into it. Um, I just wrote that one as I went. The clown hunt, I had it all outlined up to the hunt. And then I left that part of the outline blank. And then I outlined the end of it. So I knew where it would begin and end, but I didn't know what the middle would be like. And I think that's the best part of the book for me, just because it feels so spontaneously violent and like you really don't know what's going to happen next because I didn't know what was going to happen next. 
Well, being somebody that has only read one of your books so far, are any of your books, did they require any kind of research? Like if you're using any kind of historical details or get technical with anything, have you had to do any kind of research? Yeah, I, uh, I don't tend to get too historical on my books. Um, there's one coming out in 2023 that takes place in the 70s. So I had to do some research on that. Again, since I like to kind of do my own thing with the, the demons, I don't really do a lot of occult research on it. I kind of think that you can make it up as you go for that. I do research on like physical traumas and injuries and blood loss and things like that. So uh, my, my search history is dark. Well, I, uh, I also heard you say in an interview that you do your, or actually, I think you just spoke about it earlier, uh, doing your own editing. Do you have a, a background that lends itself to doing your own editing or did you just kind of learn as you went? I, I learned as I went, I'm much better at it now than I was at the beginning. Um, I've actually gone back and tweaked a few things I've noticed in like earlier books, just not changing any of the content, but some of the grammar stuff. Um, but I'm I'm actually hiring an editor for the the bigger books that are coming out this year, just because I really want to make sure that they're up to snuff. With self publishing, is it pretty easy to do little tweaks since you don't have to like maintain this gigantic stock of your novels? Like, is that the way it works? They're pretty much made on demand, or yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's super easy to go back and fix things. I'm very like strict about it. Like, it has to be like a misspelled word or like a misplaced comma or something like that. I think it would be a little disingenuous for me to just constantly be editing something that I've already published, but like little things that would make it more comfortable for the reader. I I'm okay with going back and fixing, but like once a book is out, that content is established and I will not go back and change it or add to it unless I'm doing a total re-release like cabin possessions or we have summoned. Okay. So that was the one we have summoned is like on cabin possessions. It says the author's preferred edition. Yeah. Uh, we have summoned. That's a author's preferred edition as well. Yeah. That one's going to be coming out um, mid August. Okay. But yeah, that was actually my first novel, which came out in 2020. And there was a year long gap between that and cabin possessions. And then when I started self-publishing, I was like, oh, wait, I don't have to wait between books. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Didn't you have like one novel per month for like three or four months? <laughs> I'm still doing it. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, my I, I think 2023, I'm going to go a bit slower on it. But like my goal is to have a novella at least out every month. Wow. What's the word count on a novella? I want to say around like 30,000 words, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, like a novella for me is usually around 140 pages. So like the first for the sake of is a novella, but the second one, it's over 200 pages. So that's a novel. Well, I always see you posting stories on Instagram of either pictures of DVDs and books or video of a gory scene being played on a television. So I was wondering, I imagine you have one hell of a horror film and book collection. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I love collecting. I love physical media. Um, I'm actually like 
no longer subscribe to any uh, streaming service. Um, I get Amazon Prime just to watch the boys, but now they're putting those on Blu-ray, so I will not have Amazon Prime after that. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I I really love supporting um, distributors like Vinegar Syndrome, Arrow Video, uh, Kino Lorber, who are dedicated to like finding obscure movies giving them new transfers based off the original film elements and giving them proper releases. So I, I have not kept count of how many movies I have, but it fills a room. <laughs> um, just a whole bunch of gory, horrible, trashy movies. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Judith, it has been great talking with you. Thank you again for being a guest on the show. I really enjoyed Cabin Possessions, and uh, I look forward to reading Chainsaw Hooker as soon as I get it in the mail. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to hear what people think of this one. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and follow the show on Instagram and YouTube. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.